Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from a beautifully grey day in Dublin. I'm here with a very old friend who I've been trying to get this thing happening for the duration of the podcast. We keep bumping into each other in usually bars in Asia. Usually. But he happens to be in Dublin at the moment and we've caught up with each other this morning and we're going to give it a go. I'm welcoming David Brain. How are you? I'm tired, Sean. He's tired. He's just flown in from... Auckland, New Zealand, which via, is... Via Dubai. 24. Five hours. Mm. So we were going to go for lunch today and get a bit pissed before this podcast, but we are actually drinking in my apartment. David has a pint of canned Guinness and I have a glass of red wine. Only the finest. Let's see. David and I met in 1997, I think, in Beatty Ads in Singapore. David had a background in public relations and journalism, Mm -hmm. I think, and worked for Visa as a client before Mm -hmm. he came there. Mm -hmm. And we were made the first, I think, joint planning directors of Beatty Ads. So planning, for those who don't know anything about the strategy advertising business, is a sort of thinking bit. Working out basically, just do it for Nike and why Nike should do just do it, and then the ads flow out of that. But if you have two planners, as we were, and one of them is called Boyle, and the other is called Brain, (laughs) and the CVs are identical, and you're in charge of hiring one of them, who do you pick? (laughs) So I was the boil of the operation and David was the brains of the operation. But we had good fun, huh? We did, we did. That was a strange job for me because um, I had just been let go, I think the phrase is, by the yeah. PR company. Fire, just say fire. Thank just, you. Everyone, just stop I, saying uh, pursuing was, other interests. I was self-satirising. I don't need <laughs> yeah, you to. I was reformed. Thank you. I was let go by uh, this PR company I've been working for and um, one of our clients had been Singapore Airlines. And one of the great things about PR companies is that you have access at quite senior level. And I was the speechwriter, amongst other things, for the chairman, Dr. Chong. I met Ian because uh, Ian, Ian Beatty, the sort of David Ogilvy of Asia, kind of crazy little fucker, if you're listening, and uh, learned an awful lot from you, but you were a bit of a prick. <laughs> is that fair? Pretty much. <laughs> Ian had knew, knew me from joint meetings we've been in, and Ian has for those who don't know, had created the Singapore Girl, the main campaign that, Sing- that Beatty Ads was known for, and, you know, the fun, great way to fly and, uh, and all of that. And yeah. we were the little PR company, but I had access to people that he didn't have. So basically over a few beers, the Singapore Cricket Club... Which he, he made you pay for, I'm sure. I'm sure he did. Um, <laughs> he said to me, uh, well, why don't you join me? Because you've got access to the chairman, to which I said, well, I don't know anything about advertising. This is all right, you can be a planner. I'll teach you planning. You give me access to the chairman. And uh, that was what we did. So I arrived in Debatey as the first and only planner, because I think it was a couple of months before yeah, you arrived. Yeah, yeah. Knowing well, I was, on, I was on the UOB account. I was a suit. Oh, you were a suit, were you? And then I moved down to work with you, yeah. Which it was, was a very weird. unsuit-like suit. Well, in Ireland, back in the day, there was no budgets for planners. So the fucking suit had to do the planning. And I find today so many suits just defer to planners, and they should be fucking... Thinking, they know more, but they technically should know more about the business or the client, at least the client, than the planners do. And they go, oh, we haven't got a planner, so we can't do anything. We can't write the brief because the planner's not here. Write the fucking brief, you know, it's yeah. not that difficult. I think it's the compartmentalising that most yeah. of them like. The idea that if the idea of the strategy gets rejected, then they're sort of, you know, anaesthetised from it was that. His fault. It's exactly. Yeah. Bring in another We one. get another planner, we fire him. That's it. But I mean, it was so. I, I left Ireland in '96 to go to Singapore, and it was my first time leaving the country. I threw away a kind of a sort of directorship role in one of the bigger agencies, and I was scared to the point where today I just go. My 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 rule of thumb is anything that scares me, I gravitate towards and try and make happen, because it's never as scary as you think. Probably a bit like you going into advertising. Was well, I was desperate as well because I didn't have a job. <laughs> let's get let's just, let's just, wasn't so much bravery. But you were in Singapore, right? I was in Singapore because yeah. I'd been running this agency, but yeah. I also had my now wife, my then girlfriend. Mm. Up Susie, with me. hello Susie, if you're listening. And um, yeah, so I pretty quickly had to get another job. When I arrived in Singapore, I just found all of these people who were running away from something. Uh-huh. And it was like minds, like running away from True. good and bad, running away from like the Australians. Even though Australia is my country as well, I'm, I'm an Australian citizen and I love Australia. I can see how Aussies go, oh fuck, there's a big wide world out there, mate, you've got to go fucking see it. And same in Ireland. And so you, you suddenly, you're in a pub after work with all these people who aren't going, no, don't bother trying that. You know, it's like the Eddie Izzard sketch, I want to be an astronaut. No, no, you're never going to be an astronaut, work in a shoe shop. Okay, when I work in a shoe shop, 
don't be above your station. Work in a sewer. Okay, I work in a sewer. <laughs> There's just that thing about Britain, Ireland, Australia. You know, it's just kind of, you're, you're corralled into this fucking path of... You are. Decrepitude. You yeah. are. And, and you're looking at the good side of uh, sort of expat life. I mean, there was a sort of a, another side to it as well. It was that sort of great phrase for the Brits of failed in London, try Hong Kong. Yeah, there were a lot yeah. of those. And I think... Um, Very true about Hong Kong. <laughs> well, <laughs> picture about Singapore as well, you know, it's that sort of idiot second son yeah. brigade who uh, who were, I guess they were escaping their own, uh, they were escaping their own their servitude. Own lack of intelligence. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've still got a lot of friends there, right? And when you go back, say, to Singapore or any of those Asian countries, thankfully the Asians have taken over, right? So they're, they, yeah. we, they were kind of hiring us because they thought we knew more about stuff than them, which is probably was vaguely, vaguly true. Vaguely true, is right. But you arrived there and it was just this very long hours, but it was, everyone was together and there was very little politics. There was no. politics with Ian and everybody else, but everyone else was kind of behind the idea of the agency. And yeah, but I think, I think Beatty was probably a bit different to most other people's true. experiences of, yeah. of Asia. I mean, it was genuinely egalitarian for all that we might say about um, Ian's parsimoniousness at the bar. Yeah. I mean, he was very sort of generous with, and took risks on people. And why the hell would he hire me? Why or me. Yeah, I remember he said to but me. But we turned into good planners. I, mean, yeah, I don't think we were to start with. I remember Ian said to me, like you know, I did bag him earlier. I have also gone on record as saying, you know, I left Ireland after doing close to ten years in advertising here. I learned more in two years off Ian than I did in eight, ten years here about how to do advertising well. Yeah, and he had this bullying approach which you had to deal with. But I remember him saying to me, you know, why we hired you? We got you checked out. And in Dublin and half the people we spoke to thought you were great and half the people we spoke to fucking hated you <laughs> and that's why I hired you you were Marmite yeah. you hired Marmite and, and you know also he put people like you and me together he put a hedge school trained bog man from Ireland in touch with, with a, PR a classic PR client guy so that we might yin and yang. And then his whole brand thing was about yin and yang, the hard and soft values. So the whole thing, despite it looking and also beautifully designed and presented, the whole thing actually made huge logical sense. Yeah, it did too. There was, there was a huge energy. I mean, you, you know, for those who worked in agencies, you, you kind of know and feel when you're in them whether they're good or bad and there's sort of a culture and an energy to them. And, um, you know, I knew nothing about advertising and still the only ad agency that I've, that yeah. I've worked for but um, yeah, I just took away the fact that it was an unbelievable melting pot of incredible talent run by this maniac, really, mm-hmm. who was uncompromising in... Yeah, I respect his, that about him. So do I, in his sort of intellectual approach to what we were doing and trying to achieve. But I mean, his creative you know, rigour was incredible. So you touched on Singapore Girl there, which a lot of people in Europe don't really know of the Singapore Airlines story. But So it never would win an award. So you pick an icon... You put her in everything. And yeah. so every time you look at an ad, you go, that's a Singapore ad, right? In the centre of Time magazine. And he was ruthless in not letting anyone change it. And one of the lessons I learned was he brought in a load of creatives, Neil French being one who was like, now it's subservient to women, which is ironic coming from Neil. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I need to change it. But I understood that the reason people like that needed to change it was because they wanted to say, I changed it, here was my new idea. Yeah. So he, he, he started hiring hacks, not, not hacks, but like got old dogs for the hard road from, you know, who were able to just do great art direction and he'd just say, put her somewhere special. And so you end up with this 20 year fucking solid kind of, this is what we stand for. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things I had to do for him, one of the marketing directors, I can't remember his name, is it Michael Tan? There was some doubt about whether we were going to continue with the Singapore girl, which, you know, obviously now when you look at, for all the reasons you said, would have been crazy to get rid of this huge, yeah. huge thing. And I'd come across Instagram, which many people know, you know, brand strategy agency, and one of the things that they did in those days that was pretty cool and of the time was brand valuation. You know, how much of the asset worth of the company is intangible and yeah. how much of the intangible which was very early for that very thing. early how much of the intangible is down to the, the brand so I brought these guys in and we did this whole thing and I got this presentation set up where essentially what we did was present to the board that the Singapore girl the icon was worth 17% of the asset net really? worth of the company yeah. it's almost like a light bulb went ah so that's X yeah. many jumbo jets yeah yeah, and, and Ian was quickly onto it saying yeah and just with aeroplanes you've got to have a maintenance schedule and that was the ad budget brilliant 
he came in one day to you he said the year is probably this year probably the year is 2020 and Singapore oh. Airlines is no longer number one in Asia it's Philippines there tell me why or something like that he <laughs> just left the table well he, he got, it, there was that but then the other one that I remember was that he came in and said got to make a presentation tomorrow these are terrible yeah. accents but um, Might on, good, on, on the future of Singapore Airlines and the future the future of flight David it's the future of flight give me a presentation I think that was the same thing what's the future well, look, look and then there. my wife Susie who we've name checked her mm-hmm. was uh, was and is a journalist spoken to Arthur C. Clarke who was yeah. around in those days and doing dreadful things to little boys in Sri Lanka but she allegedly, had, yeah. allegedly no, no, definitely, yeah. but she had his phone it's number so I thought, well, who better to talk to than the future of flight? And I had like two days of this presentation to the board and everything that Ian had set up. So um, I get on the I get on the phone and I, I call this number and it's that sort of faraway call that you have in those days. You almost hear it in the distance and this yeah. voice picks up mm-hmm. and I'm expecting it to be a minder. Then it's Arthur C. Clarke and I'm so shocked that the man himself has picked the phone up. He says, yeah, Arthur, how can I help? So I said, ah, oh, panicking, Mr. Clarke, what's the future of flight? Which was the best thing I could have done rather than introduce myself. And he said um, two things. He said, anti-gravity. He said, they're already working on it in Norway. So at some point, they'll be able to make planes float. And then uh, what's the thing where you get power out of water? Yeah, that's hydrogen fusion. Hydrogen fusion. So um, there it was. I had my quotes and that was the lead the presentation. That's the future of life. So the quote I don't spend time thinking about the next 15 years. I'll leave that to you marketing idiots. And uh, (laughs) I I spend my time thinking about 30 or 50 years. There you go. Mind you, we still haven't cracked gravity, Arthur. May you turn in your grave. But it was all that kind of stuff. I remember my story was, was and you may remember this, uh, and we had a guy called Tom Vesey, and I don't mind name-checking him, who was uh, quite, you know, I, did, I, I didn't have a huge amount of respect for Tom after this incident, primarily, and others. But um, Have you got a legal department? Ian K. No, you sue me. Go on, <laughs> take the fucking podcast off me. Uh, close me down. <laughs> you probably would, actually. Okay, sorry, Tom, I'm only messing. Um... Ian said, Tom, Tom, I, I used to do a great impression. You did a great impression. I, I used to, I get, uh, <coughs> like that Sean, Tom's going over to, he's managed to score a meeting with Reebok over in London on his way to a big meeting. He's leaving on their Friday, this was Wednesday. Could you do a point of view paper on where Reebok stands in the market so that he can present it to them? And I'm like, in two days, right? And this yeah. is the height of... And the consumer internet was three years old. Yeah, you was, couldn't was, get a Google. Yeah, we, I barely had Hotmail. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I go, I go, and this was around the time Pierre van Hoydonk had gone to Celtic mm. and he was trying to leave or whatever and they'd offer him a hundred grand a week, which, which in these days is nothing, but in those days it was a lot. And Hoydonk's quote was, a hundred grand a week is a lot of money if you're homeless. And if you remember... Van Hoydonk was a dick and I I had to pull this paper together for Tom and I was working on the whole idea that all of the other football, footwear manufacturers were focusing on the individual and there was no one who was focusing on team this was a great example and there were a few others uh, and so my, my my paper headline was you don't have to be a cunt to be good at sport that was the headline of the document <laughs> right knowing that Tom Vesey was going to have to pitch it uh. and the next page was Pierre van Hoydonk's quote and then the document proceeded to explain why Reebok could find a position as the team sport shoe right. where it's all about fucking team and badge so I went it down to Ian on Thursday Tom's flying on Friday and Ian went that is fucking brilliant, Sean. <laughs> I completely loved it, right? Loved the contour. Didn't mind. Said, yeah, they are all cunts, mate. And I'll give this to Tom to present. And I'm coming up gleefully rubbing my hands going, I'd love to see how Tom Feasy pitches this in. Which he bottled and didn't apparently did. Not. But uh, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. It was like kind of fun and you, you had a great feel. I never really had it before or since. No. No. Um, Tried to import it, couldn't do uh, it. No. It's um, all about Lee Ian being a dictator. It was. As I've now learned, and I didn't know then, I thought it was all normal. I mean, it was, as far as I was concerned, all ad agencies worked in this crazy way, and there I was in the middle of it, and I loved it. Good way of going. I, I guess what we're, our job, as I see it, is we have to turn a light on at the end of a tunnel that they aim for. And if another light on goes on the tunnel while they're aiming, that's better than the light I've switched on, then we go for that light. I agree. And you, 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 you run it. No, look, I agree. I'm, I mean, it's an iterative process. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, as I said, I didn't know any better. The city itself was also great in terms of it had this huge reputation as being a... Boring. Boring, and it was far from it. No. I mean, I still have a... I mean, 
benign fascism is what we're talking about. (laughs) Is that what you say? That's what I call Singapore because I think when you know the guy who invents fascism doesn't go. You never guess what I've come up with. I've come up with this brilliant way of fucking everybody, right? <laughs> they don't do that. They just happen to do it, like, in the process of getting it wrong. It was. I mean, is it benign? I mean, you know, I mean, so unlike many other fascist regimes, the uh, weapon of choice was not machetes, machine guns and fists, although that did happen in the early days. It was yeah. the inland revenue. And gerrymandering. And gerrymandering, I mean, they didn't care about us. We were all just deported. None of us counted. But, I mean, certainly Singaporeans were um, routinely harassed by the inland revenue and uh, bankrupted. And then once you're bankrupted and you're out. We had a couple of friends who were in the police force and um, they were talking about a robbery that had occurred. And uh, one of my friends said, well, what are you doing about evidence? I said, we don't need evidence. We're just going to go around the housing blocks and talk to our informants and we'll find out who it is. And one of the reasons that it was such a low crime environment was that the police were just networked in there and they were able to stop crime now they could stop and find out other things as well and the places you know was and i don't know i haven't lived there for a few years and i do love it too and this this isn't a there was a massive good side to the place but that's definitely how it worked benign dictatorship but they had you know they, they had signs saying low crime doesn't mean no crime but you know i like the idea that it's a safe place if you want to cause trouble you're going to be punished if you want to do drugs you're in deep shit right i mean i remember being at some parties where there was grass or something, I'm going, let's get out of this fucking party. Like, I didn't do any drugs at all there, no. and I, you know, I didn't do them anyway in my life at the time. And, and no. But I remember uh, one of the photographers went to film the police branches around Singapore as a big job for their annual report or something, and he was busy photographing one out near Changi, and in walk all these guys with long hair, who he knows from all the bars, who are drinking with them, and their buddies, and they're all cops. <laughs> to your point. To your point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I love what I love about it is the way it has ethnic issues, which they've they solved pretty well by by putting everyone to the same uh, yeah. offices. I don't like the fact that they brush so much. Like my dad said, I'm sure Singapore has a homeless problem, and I'm going. You never you know, saw it. You probably well, it probably does, and you don't know it. Yeah, so it's all it. it's all very clean. But you know, but one of the great examples I remember was how they controlled things through cultural norms that we wouldn't necessarily recognise. So you remember the the thing about. Face in Asia yeah. and China, and face in for those who don't know is that something that affects your reputation or somebody embarrasses you publicly. It means an awful lot more to them than it does to us. We just might just laugh it off, and they can't. But there was an, there was instances in the HDB blocks because uh, sort of the council blocks, the mm. public housing, so true, yeah. where people couldn't be bothered to wait until they got to their flat to have a piss, so they were pissing in the elevators. <laughs> it was a big problem. Um, don't get me going on the better sides of Chinese culture in that respect but that's a classic example and the police worked out you know well, well they pretty easy to work out where that was happening and, and their way of solving this was to put detectors in some of these elevators and so one time some poor guy coming home with his arms go off and it stops pissing exactly that alarms go off it stops and there he is standing in a puddle of his own piss and all of a sudden the elevator goes down the doors open and there are the mass ranks of the Singapore media you know the TV and everything and there's his photo and he's taken and handcuffed and this is the man who pissed in the elevators and it sort of stopped overnight because nobody wanted to run the risk of their face and their reputation so when I went first over there Charles Anderson who you remember Charles Anderson good morning I do <laughs> lovely man and I he's a great brain brain the size of a planet Charles comes in to me, gives me my briefing uh, first week. Sean, what you have to understand is that the Chinese hate losing face, okay? You must never touch them on the head, or you must never embarrass them in front of client meetings. They hate losing face. And I went, he said, the worst countries in the world for this, and you've got to understand it's a culture thing. I said, what about the British? <laughs> he went, what? He said, you fuckers are the worst for losing face in the entire world. Let's have a look at that colony or your football fans or whatever, whatever, whatever. He's like, that's unfair. Which segues nicely into where you come from because it's not from England despite the accent. Wales. Tell me, I don't know anything about where you came from really. Oh, Even well, no, I was born in Bromsgrove. I was born in the Midlands but my mother's Welsh. And that's, you always played the Welsh card though. Well, I was sort of brought like up with that. So I was, so I was um, th- my first three years were in Portsmouth because my father was in the Navy. My mother is a Welsh farmer's daughter and then from three to 16 Essex so I'm sort of an Essex boy really but we spent all summer holidays and most summer holidays on the farms in Wales and the Uh, biggest regret that my Welsh relatives have was that I showed absolutely no propensity for the rural life 
because I was the only boy on the heart and there was farms to inherit and to really? become a farmer and do really? all of that stuff and I never Before did it but I, but I was mid Wales so just over the border from Hereford there's right. an English town nearest one is Kington but there's uh, it's the old sort of um, uh, black country so, right? so, you're, so now that I know this so just on the Welsh thing, yeah, so why? I'm, I'm so 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 my grandmother and my grandfather drummed it into me that I was Welsh and obviously ah, okay. I wasn't because I lived yeah. in there. But my sort of um, rationalising of this, certainly because I'm sure we'll get onto it in a minute, in terms of sport was always yeah. very important to me. So yeah. I was Welsh when it came to rugby, English when it came to, to football. Right. None of us are mentally 100% sound as we all know, but I think that the reason I have, because I'd be a classic candidate for black dog and depression you know me well enough to know mm-hmm. that and I, I touch wood haven't and don't get that never say never Sean never say never I know it could be coming to a, a movie near me after I just turned 51 um, but you're not looking at thanks but this idea that the look that we had to be able to work out there and see China you just you, you just go stop stop whining you have everything and more than any other person oh, I often say to people would you like to would you like to be born again you know, we were. This was around the abortion. Thing. I used to have this joke about not that you can make jokes about abortion, but the fact that no one asked the fetuses if they'd like to be born. <laughs> I bet you that if they were given a full briefing on what it was like to live for eighty years on this path, a huge percentage in a referendum might vote to not. No, grand thanks. I don't have a bad hair day. I'm cool. But this idea that we just are so lucky, and that's not meant to sound patronising. That's meant to sound personal. That I just went to myself and went. You better have a breakdown that's worth having. You better you better have a, have a reason that's really fucking important. Otherwise, pick yourself up and fucking get on with it. Because I know it's a terrible thing to say people who have depression, but I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the insight it gave you into how lucky we, we are as, as people to have been born. First yeah, world. No, no, I've got no. I agree 100%. I mean, I'm without being too philosophical about the time in which we, we live and the time we're going into, I mean, it's been an amazing amazing time to be to be alive but I think as you get older as well in terms of depression you I don't know about you but you sort of spot your moods more I don't do you ever get it no I get down I get blue and but I'm I'm quite a sort of stable sort of person but mm. I recognize now what makes me sad and down and low and one of the things I just gave up a job two years ago I was sort of uh, I worked for Edelman world's biggest PR company i Lived in Auckland mm. for six years, well, running, running, work. running Asia. Now Auckland, if anybody looks at a map, it's not exactly the the beating heartbeat of Asia. So I was doing flights every other week. And one of the things that I noticed was that as I got tired, as I got older, and as I got tired and jet lagged, that triggered a blue thing for me. And it was mm. almost now. And I'm saying when I came in that you know I've just got off this huge long flight and I really hate flying now. I think it's almost a triggering thing that I'm, it almost reminds me of those times when I was jet lagged, tired, under stress, under pressure, and that really began to sort of affect me. So I avoid those things now. But I think as you get older, you recognise in your own rhythms and in the things that you do or don't do how to avoid that. You get better yeah, at it. I, I think so. I'd be surprised if somebody who's fifty-one would succumb to that unless you had any sort of traumatic. No, no I, 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 I did have some shit going on when I was a kid. But I remember handling that myself as a kid and being, like, I still protect that little kid. One of the reasons I don't have kids, you know, is I don't want to repeat anything like that and I'd be scared I might. Hmm. But you've, you've, been, you've been like that ever since I've known you. That's not a new thing, is it? No, I mean, no, you've no. been incredibly consistent on yeah. the I don't want kids thing. I made a decision not to have any children, not to get married, not to do drugs when I was 17. I don't know how I made that decision, but like, there was some really fast-tracked maturity that I had to go through between about 7 to 14 and 15, which I just kind of go, fuck, I don't know how I did it. Um, and it also makes me, so for all the problems, the reason I am who I am and I'm kind of smartish and I'm witty or whatever, I had to kind of, I was, I was alone for a lot of my teenage years. Why were you alone? I, I, just, felt, I just felt I was, it was me against the world. It was me. It, well, you, you mean you were with people, but you my were... Family. I didn't feel I had... I didn't feel I had my family had my back. I didn't. I felt like I was. I was always just, and I was probably difficult. You know, my parents would say I was difficult, and blah, 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 blah. but you know, most kids are difficult. Mm. And so I gained this huge independence, and then I started working at eighteen. So I never went to college, and I, uh, you know, I worked in Ogilvy at, in Dublin at eighteen with this Chris Waddle haircut and a silver suit and white shoes, and thought I was fucking 
business, right? <laughs> do you have any photos? I do, yeah. No, that's what that's just picture in your mind. I had a moped. <laughs> Company moped. Yamaha my dad. <laughs> um, but I, I suddenly had to be 24 then because most people were out of college. They were 24, so I was 18 and I was the kid, but I was cheeky and I was, I used to do stand-up comedy back then. I was kind of, you know, so I was, but it was all just me. It was, it was there was no, you know, I, I had no one to defer to or ask for advice it was just like fucking go for it and so there's an upside to that that gives you this uh, sort of ability to because I, I think you're totally right like it, it, literally in the last four or five years I've suddenly been able to go okay I'm not doing any more of that I'm going to try this I'm not going to be that sort of person I've got this thing of kindness where I try and live by that because I've taken God and religion out mm-hmm. and said at some not? point you have to did you have to take it out? It was never, it never even entered. People said to me, How, when did you start becoming that? I said, I don't. Well, I remember Ireland, making Ireland the decision. Ireland and England, very different. You know? I guess so, huge, yeah. Yeah, I mean, both my parents, my yeah. father's dead now, but my, my mother's is almost as militant an atheist as I am. And I think you have to, I remember a girlfriend of mine read The God Delusion when mm. we were in Bangkok, and she came, she said, she was so upset by it. She said, you know, this, this guy is so arrogant and so polemical and so kind of convinced in the fact that there is no God and I go you've got to bring a gun to a gunfight <laughs> well exactly you know, the most arrogant exactly and, well, and kind of bullshit thing is the church but the, but the arrogance thing is always thrown at atheists whether it's Dawkins whether it's Hitchens mm-hmm. whether it's Ricky Gervais Sam or Harris, whoever yeah, it's, yeah. it's the only thing to go with because I still find it bewildering when people who <laughs> seem to be rational saying people go to church and have religion yeah. there is some part of me which closes down from them yeah, from that I agree. and I've got friends who are that way inclined and I avoid talking about it with them I've avoided some friends over it and I've, avoid, I've avoided some friends yeah. with it too I just don't it's such a strange it's not that it isn't, you know, it's, not, it's not like they have some terrible political view or have done some hideous crime but it's, it's almost the same level. I just don't get them it's like flat earth, earth, right? This flat earther thing, which is weirdly coming back for some fucking reason. Anti-vaxxing. Anti-vaxxers. It's, the world's gone mad, Yeah. The people who are into religion and believe in religion will look at a flat earther as if he's got two holes in his head. His circular head. But, <laughs> but And yet. Yeah. And yet, it is more likely that there's a flat earth than there is probably a god. Yeah. There's a great right. speech online which I'll link to on this because it, it was a lecture by Dan Dennett who I'm not really of the four horsemen. I think he's like I don't think he's that all that. But anyway, he does this great thing about and I understand this. We talked earlier about the idea before we turned the podcast on about the peop- there are people out there who think too much and who understand maybe that it's all a ride or that it's all there's nothing that can be done or we don't have free will or whatever it is. And that we're just going through this kind of journey and let's just enjoy it. And then there are people who go, no, 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 no. There's an afterlife and we have to be good and we have to do all those sort of things. But those guardrails that they work in stop them thinking outside the fucking guardrails, which actually does drive you crazy. Because you go, you, you, you turn to nihilism, you turn to what's the fucking point in getting up in the morning. You can go hedonist. which I agree with a lot of that. But, you know, that, 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 that without the guardrails of religion... <laughs> To go to mass every day and have the communion and get yeah. your fucking confession and you know you'll meet dead granny again when she dies and she's gone to a better place and blah blah blah. So I've been studying the scriptures recently. I've been studying gospels. There's a great guy called um, Professor Ehrman and he does these great lectures about how pathetically inconsistent all the gospels are. If you read them, if right. you read like the death of Jesus across all gospels, like in the first four he says nothing except "My God, why have you forsaken me." In the last one, John, he's chatty Cappy. He's going around to everybody, going, hey, how are you, Mary Magdalene? Wash my feet. And it's like, that's all piffle, piffle, whichever is the best one. And so you see, if it was God, and it was the word of God, and it was God's word or whatever gospel means, you'd end up going, if you were God coming down with your son, weird that you'd actually sacrifice your son for some weird reason, and he's also you, and that's also weird as another the least thing you would do if you're going to make such a magnanimous gesture is make sure everyone got it. Yeah. Crystal fucking clear. 
Yeah, like the most the Ten Commandments pretty crystal clear. Boom, 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 boom. Weird about the ox and stuff. But you don't really have to take. But you'd yeah. make it clear if you're all powerful. You wouldn't go. You I'll make it a bit weird, and I'll make it a bit difficult to understand and yeah. inconsistent. No, but you know, that's the, they would say it's all the mystery. But yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're right about. I mean, you have to think. So one of the things I mean about I guess you know Ireland is a much more religious country than the UK. I mean, the Church of England is. We're catching up. Of, don't worry, we're catching up. You are. It's a sort of almost an official way of sort of partaking in society without believing in anything and even yeah. most of the priests believe that as well we were here on holiday a couple of years ago and we were in Galway and we were coming across Susie and I and the family and the kids were asleep in the car and we were listening to um, Talkback Radio in Ireland because Talkback yeah. such a great yeah. way of getting to know a country Radio is one of the most powerful mediums oh right? my god it was fantastic <laughs> and I almost drove off that brilliant motorway that now goes you know, across yeah. the country when it was Stephen Fry had just said whatever oh, yeah. he'd said about the Pope yeah. being a it, no, it's a, so we well, have blasphemy laws, right? Blasphemy. So, so um, I'm going to try and find this. Worth actually. Go on. So tell he, me what he had said whatever he'd said, and we heard person after person, you know, who sounded like I mean, you can't tell what they look like, but they sounded like lovely little sort of middle class people in the middle of Ireland, absolutely spitting venom and wanting the guy hung and strung and caught. And it was like something we'd never heard before. It's something out of the Middle Ages. I know. Um, you know let me just, let me see if I can find this because it's it's worth. Uh, what, what was happening at the time was there was, we, and we've just since changed the blasphemy laws in a recent referendum. We had these blasphemy laws that were basically the Pakistan were looking at our blasphemy laws, going, "This good is pra- what we need." Good practice. Good practice. <laughs> and it was something dating back to the eighteen hundreds when we were all fucking religious. Was standing. And Stephen involved. Fry went on a, an interview with Gay Byrne, and he basically just fucking took the piss out of God and all that sort of stuff from religion. And some guy out in Mayo, I think it's a prank, I hope it was a prank, because there is that side to the Irish that would go, this would be funny, you know. <laughs> so he kind of, it he was, went to the local police Mayo. station and reported Stephen Fry <laughs> for fucking taking the piss out of God, right? And the cops went, technically there's a fucking rule here, right? And we're all going, because we, we do great things here, but we also do stupid things. Like is, is that like our treason laws against the yeah, majesty? Yeah, or, or lesser majest, and, you know, like, yeah. which actually is a real deal in Thailand. So anyway, uh, so there's all this kerfuffle that Stephen Fry should be arrested and put on trial and go to prison for taking the piss out of God. Right. So Richard Dawkins wrote, and I, I just called call it up here, in, in, this was 2017, Richard Dawkins wrote into the Irish Times and he said, Sir, as a gesture of solidarity with Stephen Fry, I quote a sentence from my book, The God Delusion. Quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, Philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Every one of these adjectives is amply documented with full biblical citations in Dan Barker's book, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. I shall be giving a public lecture in the National Concert Hall Dublin on June the 12th, and I shall therefore be available for arrest on a charge of blasphemy. <laughs> that was two years ago. That was not 20 years ago. This is our problem. Did, did he come? He did, of course. I think we got, we got, <laughs> the blasphemy was. But we're doing that with like homosexuality and abortion yeah. and sorry. So. Yeah. And weirdly, we can jump ahead. Yeah, yeah, no. It's these so, so modern and yeah. so egalitarian um, and such a brilliant, I mean, I'm, when I was doing A-level literature, whether it was John Singh or Bernard Shaw or W.B. Yeats, why is it that pound for pound the Irish are the best writers, novelists and writers well, because and poets you, you, in the last think... sort of 200 years in, in the English language? And in New Zealand, uh, where I now live, New Zealand's similarly sized, mm-hmm. small country in many ways. One of the things they pride themselves on is, we're, yes, but pound for pound, we're the most creative... Mm-hmm. And sure enough, if you look at some of the traditional ways of looking, well, in our world, so certainly in our world, in can and rugby, in can and rugby. Well, that's that's something to do with the South Pacific guys. But in advertising, can where you go and win sort of the World Cup, which is a can gold lions. If you world look Cups. at can gold yeah. lions per head of population, New Zealand is the winningest country yeah. 
in the world, and there is something deeply creative about that country. But as I keep pointing out, do you really think you're more creative than Ireland? I mean, show me the novelist, show me the canon of your literature. And okay, it's a, it's a younger country in, in many regards, but there's a particular type of Irish creativity that I've always loved, which is you know, so brilliant at my language and so easy for someone like me to access and it's a, it's a wonderful quality. Well, we sent all our soap out there anyway, right? So that's what to? to Australia and New Zealand. Or no, sorry, the just, British no, did. No, no it was, so uh, almost exclusively mm. to Australia yeah. and actually New okay. Zealand was mostly Scots. Oh. Scots and English. So, uh, well, not when, it come, not, not, when it come, not when it comes to drinking. No, there, there is a very bad Not when it comes to drinking. I mean, it's, no. it's very uh, strange culture, New Zealand, for that. I mean, for, for years, they had, um, you know, whole areas that you couldn't buy a drink in. You couldn't get a pub in. Oh. And then they had what they, you know, you think that the licensing laws in the UK were strict. There was a, you used to have, the pubs used to close at six o'clock at night. So they had what they called the six o'clock swill. Yeah, so you imagine this, a yeah. load of guys, well, it's the Once a Warriors yeah. scenes where they come out of the yeah. meatworks at five o'clock, they've got an hour then yeah. to get hammered before they go home, and they go into the pub, and all the furniture's bolted to the floor, and all the jugs are made of, made of plastic, and all of that, and then it will all be swilled out with a big. So it's it's a very Calvinistic Scottish culture. It's very different. Do they look after the Marys better than the Aussies looked after the the, the uh, Aboriginals? <sighs> well, um, I, they didn't go around hunting them. <laughs> Um, their kids. Uh, although you know the Maori wars were you know a big um, uh, a big thing, uh, yes. And there's a treaty, so the, the Waitangi Treaty, which was between the Maori and the and the Crown, still exists and is still honoured as such. But if you look at the prison population, if you look at where poverty lies, if you look at issues like um, uh, domestic violence and drug taking, it yeah. is almost, not almost exclusively, but it's, it is, it's a familiar story. There's no doubt that the imperial legacy has still kept that population in a dreadful place. Well, the imperial legacy is why we have a better writers, because if, you know, if eight people took up a gun, two people took up a pen. And so a huge amount of our literature, even up to Seamus Heaney and stuff like that, is all based and rooted in nationalism and rooted in the oppression and rooted in the famine and rooted in in trying to get a fair go right so you know Sean O'Casey's play, plays W.B. Yeats stuff you know even when you look at stuff like Ulysses there is still this huge part of us that's screaming to say for recognition is that true now? I mean is that yeah is I that, think so yeah. I, think that's, I mean it doesn't seem to me doesn't seem to me to be I mean you know the literature and the people that we talked about many of them writing a hundred years ago but um, it seems to me to be a country confident in itself now and I mean certainly in terms of its legacy with the, the British we're looking good we have a we have a uh, a government that's doing very poorly domestically but doing well on the public stage the Iraq we've got a gay immigrant as a, as a we're a bit Canada-esque you're not as cool as us in that regard, though. Look no. at Jacinda. No, well, I mean, we're... Yeah, no, she's brilliant. Sorry, I thought you meant English. Yeah, yeah, sorry, much better than Britain. Yeah, no, I mean, New Zealand is... It, uh, New Zealand is a place I never went to, by the way, so I have to go and visit you. Because everyone said it was like Ireland. And there's, hu- there's a huge affinity. I, I think the affinity Irish people have is with New Zealand as a country, Scottish people, definition of a Scots person, or an Irish person is a Scotsman who can swim. <laughs> I always said that about the Irish from the Welsh perspective you're just Welshmen who learn so to go swim. back to your thing like so you were a kid in Essex mainly is that where you brought up yeah. were you good at school then no I was terrible at school right. I went to comprehensive schools that weren't, weren't very good I think I had a bit of a you process you uh, no, I worked quite hard the reason I got by was I played football for the football yeah. team we used to play football together didn't we right? did and that was the only thing that sort of let me be and let people not pick it was terrible it was like it was bullying and it all was a dreadful shit. dreadful place um, and your name and probably didn't help it didn't help at all <laughs> well, 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 well Mr. Tracy when you lose on the round mine didn't help in school either I'd like to <laughs> no I mean it didn't Mr. Boyle Boyle the bum yeah <laughs> Um, no, so um, I really didn't enjoy school and I wasn't very good at it. My mother was a teacher and was, so I think, vaguely dismayed. In the same at, school? No, 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 somewhere else. But I think she was vaguely dismayed at my academic achievements or lack of and So homeschooled me a bit. And um, So my school was one of the first to do the CSEs. It was so modern. So in a comprehensive back in the day, the idea was that you had mixed abilities. Top to bottom in a geographical area, you had geniuses and <laughs> people who were you know, significantly 
educationally disadvantaged. My school went one step further in almost a Corbynistic way. I know. Let's put that mix in every class. Oh, my God. In, yeah, the just brand think, balance just in every class. Just think about what that meant and what that meant for the teachers. It didn't work at all. It was yeah. chaos. It was, like a, it was like some bright new world. It's called Greensward Comprehensive, and you can't even find it on a Google map. I think somebody just obliterated it. Was it a test it. idea? It was just some bright new educational experiment, and it was just... Anyway... Um, so that was awful and then um, so I'm 16 and I've got by then a complete Essex accent which obviously I've I've lost you know a lot of we moved to Liverpool ah, so imagine that Essex boy turns out and I went to a technical college also right from Merseyside yeah. well the Wirral which is a posh bit of okay, posh right, bit right. of Liverpool but it was um, actually the Liverpool people are my favourite people in England yeah well that was um, that was uh, uh, well that's because you're Irish yeah, I think I mean, there's yeah, a, an affinity but um, really, you're a United fan. I know, and I've you know I've been over and back to uh, Anfield, and we get onto football through this segue uh, with walking into the fucking Kenny Dalglish stand corporate box with Austin Lally, my friend, and just gone. Yeah, I'm a United fan, and they go, oh, "That's a bit brave of you to say that." But I mean, I remember walking onto the steps and just two hours before kickoff, just looking at that pitch and just fucking totally respecting it and for all the shit between Man U and Liverpool and there is loads of shit and kind of hatred at the very root of it all with all the money that's happening now there's this huge I think respect that the two clubs have got this fucking heritage as uh, Jose Mourinho once said this thing that goes really deep and I remember just looking at that pitch going the amount of fucking goals I've seen and obliterations that Liverpool have done on that pitch you know it's kind of like I don't want to worship at it I don't want to be in the fucking cop shouting for them but I'm not going to be they're all a bunch of cunts I'm going and you know I like lads you know I like you fucking you know, you know, you know, you're not like the other fucking manks and blah blah you know that was sort of a little bit Manchester sort of accent but it's because no, you're Irish uh, yeah so you it is, uh, yeah and it also is it downtrodden is it is downtrodden and it is a it is a, it is a city that has I think it's this it's the city closest to Dublin with more Irish people in it than any other. But what was it like growing up there? So you're, you're, well, you're used for the football, right? I, I played football there as well. So it was 16 to, 16 to 18 there, but you were, you were asking about some school and education. It was a technical college. So I got enough O-levels just to do A-levels, and I got enough A-levels just to get into university. And when I got to university, educationally... I think I just matured and I liked that environment much more than the terrible school and technical college that I've been to and, and I was fine then. You did literature? I did literature. It was the only thing I could do. Right. At A-level I did art, literature, history and general studies and then I did literature at, as a degree at the University of East Anglia. Um, one of the courses I did there was what, with... Norwich or something? Norwich, a funny <laughs> city. Oh, you got a light. Um, from Rim here, I'm from Rim here. <laughs> um, and uh, but it had the it was one of the only places that had the creative writing course. Ah. And Malcolm Bradbury, the novelist now, you know, sadly died from a n- number of years ago, was uh, was running that. And I did one semester of that. There's been huge numbers of novelists that have come out of that. And we had some fantastic teachers, Lorna Sage, brilliant, storied academics in a really then brutally modern environment. If you look at sort of University of East Anglia, as my father would say, wandering around it, I can't believe they built a second-rate university on a first-rate golf course. Oh, what a waste! <laughs> Good point, um, Mr. Good point. Brain. Good point, Mr. Brain. Um, but it sort of did the modular thing, which is very normal now that you can do sort of a, a module of this and a module of that, so you could put together history and literature and philosophy, which was very unusual in those days when you used to do sort of the straight line yeah, yeah. subject matter, and it just suited me down to the ground, and I loved it. So you, you came out of there as a writer, a journalist. Was that the first job? So I came out of there, and I'd sort of d- done things like uh, edit the university newspaper, my, the, the highlight of which my mother still keeps reminding me of is um, one day I was reviewing bands. Uh, the usual music reviewer was away and I was sent to review this new band that was coming through uh, on a promotional tour called U2. And my great phrase that my mother always keeps reminding me is I said, this band will not go very far at all. So, um, but no, so I came out of that and then went into journalism at Eastern Daily Press, which is a local newspaper, and started working for them and then got made redundant on a last in, first out and went to work for the Staffordshire Evening Sentinel on the training course my parents yeah, lived the hard yards yeah. lived there for a little while and then uh, well, what was not, it like not, in your head back then not, not really because again it was 1984 I graduated so there was a recession coming mm. through 
as it always was in those days, it seemed. Okay, uh, have a job, and so. I got moved to London again. So then I ended up in Newcastle on the Evening Chronicle, and they couldn't pay me to finish my training, so I worked in a PR company half-time and on the, on the newspaper for the rest of it. So I did finish the qualifications, but doing dog shows, cat shows, women's institutes, <laughs> meetings, coroner's court, juvenile court, crown court, it was pretty boring. Did you have any part of you at that time that was going, well, this looks like it's it for the rest of my life, or were you going, oh, this is all just... No, I don't... i to get out of this and move... Did you have huge ambition to leave? Or, no, what was, what was I, no, in your ambition, head? ambition came later. I mean, I'd never met somebody who was posh until I went to university. Mm. You know, I, I, by the way, I had no way did I have a deprived upbringing. Yeah, yeah, like, middle class. Yeah. yeah, that sort of middle class thing. But we, we lived in lower middle class places for most of the time. But um, uh, no, I'd never met anybody posh. And I don't think, you'd, I don't think you were encouraged to have... No huge ambition and it was only when I got down to London and by then it was sort of the um, mid 80s and ended up in a PR company in the West End that you know all of a sudden you get exposed to all that sort of stuff and you think oh my god I can actually get some of this it never occurred to me that you could have nice cars but you had writing chops oh I could write I could always write it was the only thing I could ever do so after you went we talked earlier about the Beatty thing you then went to join Edelman and you ended up very quickly rising to close to the top of that and I remember we used to have these late night conversations once every six months about football and just about where we were going and we'd, we'd spend half an hour just yapping about what was going on but I remember you said to me once that you rose to the top and it was like a ladder and you get to the top and you go is this what's running everything? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember listening yeah. because I, I actually didn't get it quite to the top that you got but I got close I mean I was kind of on the I would have been on your board right and I quickly climbed down again going I don't want to be up there but I always remember those words because you were going do you remember do you remember I, saying no, that no I do remember I do remember saying that look I with due deference to Edelman because it's not just Edelman it's everywhere right this is this is every no, big business I mean, and, and yeah and Edelman was and still is the biggest and most successful PR company yeah. in, on the planet the hardest job I did in agency when I was in that level of mid-management when you've got four or five accounts not enough resources but you're kind of responsible for all that yeah. stuff and oddly whilst the responsibility always got more and more nothing was ever as hard as those three or four years in london across two agencies between the ages of 27 to yeah. 29 nothing was as hard as that and we were obviously young and you partied hard and mm. but so nothing was that hard so i remember getting to the top and being in uh, on on the family board at Edelman and sitting there and not necessarily being disdainful but just looking around and thinking well what was the big fear is that it yeah I agree with you totally there's no in fact the the Peter principle is yes was where I saw that thing in action most because there are people who were great at say being creative and were sitting on these fucking boards because it was an ad saying oh well this person should be down be like you know if you had Eric Cantona, but instead of Eric Cantona being out on the pitch, or, you know, sorry, let's take a better example, one of your, Aguero. You know, instead of Aguero being on the pitch, you put young fellas on the pitch, and Aguero told them what to do from the sidelines well, by shouting. Totally. Look, I, I think in, I don't, I don't know if it's the same in ad agencies, because my experience is more limited, as you've, you've heard now at length, but in PR companies, if you're good at PR, you get given people and accounts you slowly rise to the top and you end up running a company and nobody's trained you for that. You're good at PR. I mean, who who said you were any good at running a company? Most of the best PR businesses are run by people who've had no business training or often uh, don't really have the instincts for people management at all and there's there's just no filtering them out. I de-Peter principled myself. Self-de-Peter principled. Yeah, I got up up there there and went... What was, your right. high, what was your highest... Probably Saatchi. I was on the global planning board of Saatchi and I was also global head of planning at uh, you know, 2IC to Guy Murphy and JWT. But, so I was in the smoky rooms. You know, I was hearing stuff that was just deeply unpleasant. Because like, uh, you know, I have a little... I, have, I always kept a little flame of ethics and try and be, do the right thing and don't be a cunt in me. Which doesn't play in New York, right? If you you know if, if you can't be trusted to be a cunt, then you're not on the board, right? If you can't be trusted to have the fucking secrets of Shell as we did in JWT or the fucking Diamond Company in South Africa, right? 
you know, they're, they're like the cigarette boys. You so know? those are client issues. No, but, they're, 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 those, but you but, can imagine but, the spawn that comes out of that into right. the agency, right? Right. It's just like, it's the famous Bill Hicks thing. Uh, what did you say, dear? Well, we found out that we put arsenic in baby food. It helps them sleep better. Good night, dear. And you just go to sleep. But you just do it, right? You don't ask any questions. And it's like anyone who asks questions. I mean, Tal Adams used to say to me that, you know, I used to get hired and fired for the same reason. <laughs> these, companies, these companies go we need someone to come in and tell it like it is and kick us up the ass and tell us what we're doing wrong and then two months later this guy's kicking us up the ass and telling it like it is get rid of him he's not a team player and so I just couldn't cope with the fucking whole thing and I still can't you know I just can't do politics I no, never no. could well I, I was surprised and to you know to Richard Edelman's to eternal credit he put they up, seemed nice because they were well, so family owned he they put up with my saying that I mean most of that I, I worked 14 years 13, 14 years at Edelman and before that the longest time I'd spent in the company was two and a half yeah, years yeah. for the partly the same reason so we used um, to talk very fondly Richard, Richard put up with my shit for a long yeah. time and one of the other questions we had and I need to put this down on this fucking thing is advertising versus public relations we had a discussion once about the fact that public relations is more nefarious than advertising and you disagreed with me on that nefarious Given yeah, but public relations is more insidious and, and, and sinister and horrible than advertising. Because advertising, at least you know, that's an ad. Public relations is buried in a fucking article by some journal you've paid off and comes from Goebbels, right? And, and you were still able to defend it. Maybe that was because you were still chairman of Edelman. What about now? Where are the bodies buried, David? I mean, is it really... Sir, so you've got... I mean, it's almost... That's almost as juvenile... <laughs> As a, journal, as a journalist's view of advertising, and, and maybe that's why you rose, rose as high as you did and no higher. You so So, you patronising ad man. Let me, so... You know what I mean, though? Well, you're, you're talking about press relations. So, in, in PR, a multi-billion dollar business, the reason most of that business gets done is that companies and organisations have to live and work within society in some way they can't just go off and put arsenic in baby food and they can't uh, well they did <laughs> but they can't you yeah. know, uh, for, they can. for long they can't for long but most companies now have to work out how they operate within societal bounds and, and confines let me give, give you an example there's um, a major coffee company in China had opened many many coffee stores and in China as you know from your time yeah. in there you have to show that you're contributing in some way to society. Otherwise, certainly as Western companies, you kind of get thrown out. And happily in China, the roadmap is shown. It's a five-year plan. It's very... In China, there is only one public relations or public affairs strategy, which is show the government how you fit in with their five-year plan in ways that they could never imagine that you have ever fit in before. So one of the issues in China, this is 10 years ago, I'm going back now, was, um, still is, but then was huge, was rural poverty. Crops were failing and, and they didn't have valuable crops. And there were some areas of China that were appropriate for growing coffee. So at huge expense to themselves, they educated all of these farmers in growing a whole new crop. And they flew people in from South America to do it. And they set up whole communes to, to do that. And then that crop and brand was sort of marketed through China. That, that was done to facilitate a government objective, not their objective, the coffee that actually wasn't very good and came out of that. And there's a whole host of other things that were done to show that that coffee company were operating within societal norms of that country. Now, there's another one, a, a food company in the same country. You'll remember in China, one of the great issues was food security, and they had some dreadful issues in yeah, the supply chain with baby, you know, food, and baby food and bad oil and all sorts of things. So this company which normally sets up its research arm into things like food security and supply chain issues, was going to be doing that in the US. It moved that at huge expense to itself to China. And the Chinese government co-funded that. So what I'm saying is that public relations is a management discipline, most of it, whereby companies show and contribute and fit into societal norms that don't necessarily fit their own commercial norms. And most of what companies like Edelman and Weber Shamwick and the big companies are doing is that. It's like management consultancy. Mm-hmm. So you can say that that is underhand, it's Goebbels-like, but actually it's doing quite a bit of good. And if you believe that companies and commercial organisations should exist, then PR is the conscience of them. Now, 
I'm not saying that other times spin isn't involved and putting lipstick on pigs doesn't happen. Of course it does, but honestly, you know, you wouldn't get companies the size of Edelman or Weber Shamwick. You know, these are billion-dollar fee income companies on spin. There's not enough spin in the world, and you get found out. It really isn't. Those are the little companies you see. Most of what public relations does is a management discipline that's happening at a really fundamental level within organisations, and you can be cynical about it, but if you're cynical about that level of public relations then you're just cynical about the commercial world and you cannot be consistent and say they can be commercial companies without good public relations how can that happen otherwise yeah i agree with meanwhile yeah advertising just fucking sells more shit the first two letters of propaganda are pure (laughs) the first two letters of advertising are ad etc so my point is that people know what an ad is uh, 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 increasingly, so you're, right, increasingly so you're, blurred so you're you're narrowing it down now uh, yeah I'm just saying edit, that I'm just saying that no I, I, I totally accept that companies have a role to play in CSR they have a role to in, in community they have a role to show what they're good they're doing not just in terms of employment they have a role to show what good their products are doing they have a role to kind of start blurring the edges between journalism and, and whatever so you think PR is the thick of it ad fan <laughs> as an ex-journalist or very briefly was a journalist back in the day when I was you know looking at that as a career it was a much more established industry so you had people who had trained and worked in it for many years and you know you had people who covered different beats energy technology farming and had deep understanding of that and so if you were a company operating in one of those areas and you were talking to a journalist who you had a long-term relationship because they'd always been covering you they had deep expertise of it most journalists now have not got that so why do companies do more spin now? Because journalism isn't as deep yeah. and as qualified. And unfortunately, people like you read media and believe, what, oh, as a journalist, it must be true. And actually, they haven't got time to, for it to be true. The press release goes straight into the paper. So that's why there's more PR people now than there are journalists. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, um, which is quite sad, right? Which is, which is an indictment, not on the PR world, no. but on the journalism world and yeah. the fact that the publishing and the, and the economic model for that has sort of fallen apart. So what is the future? Fake news, Trump, journalism, PR, do you have uh, a view on that? So, I mean, PR companies are growing slower than they were before. The PR world, I think, will grow at the same rate as the economy. I don't think it's going to grow anymore or any There'll less. There'll always be an need for it. There'll always be a need for it. The agency world of PR, there was an opportunity when social media first came and the big platforms arrived. And when we went from the days of when the creative agencies would do the 30-second TVC and you'd have your sort of four campaigns in a year and that got blown up and all of a sudden it became short-term creative, much more earn-centric creativity, social by design, only intelligently promoted, lots of small... And PR companies were really well-equipped to do that. Mm. And they rushed in, and they did a pretty good job for the first few years. But then the ad agencies started to come back the other way. And what the ad agencies had was the upstream stuff. Planners, creatives, the ability to think the big idea. And most PR companies are fundamentally ill-equipped to think most and there's honourable exceptions Mm -hmm. and Edelman still I think tries hardest to break that mould and there's lots of independent uh, and smaller national champions that do that well but as an industry PR failed to grasp the planning and the big idea creative thing at scale you know and that's that's on the brand side of the business so PR's got two sides got the brand side it's got the reputation side. And the reputation side is what you advertising guys never see. We're in with the boards yeah. and those levels, and that's the management stuff I was describing before. On the brand side, we had this opportunity, but then the ad agencies became much better at that. So I was in BBDO uh, in their office in Auckland a little while ago. Like great, great agency. I think there's about 200-odd people in there, and 25 of them were PR people, or what I'd have recognised as PR. Yeah. And if you've been to Cannes for the last few years... You know, any great campaign, it's kind of a PR idea, but they're all done by ad agencies. So ad agencies have got better at brand PR, the big idea stuff, than the PR agencies did. And then the other problem for the PR world is that on the brand side, and CMOs, marketing directors, spending fees with agencies 14 times what the CCO or PR director does. So for the future of the agency world in PR, you have to get your share of the... Advertising. You could have a merge eventually. In some agent, in some companies. Well, Edelman was the model for that, right? 
they were trying to yes. judo roll themselves into yes yeah. but um, so um, but I think there's limits to what a, a PR okay. brand can do so let, let me just finish yeah. finish because my last piece on that analysis is the consultancies so the consultancies now if you look at the numbers the consultancies do the same amount in fees with the CMO or marketing director as the big marketing holding companies almost exactly to the dollar. Now we don't see a lot of that, and to be fair, a lot of that is automated and about process and systems. Does it find the difference there? Accenture, KPMG. Okay, so the the management, the, the management, right, the management, the management. Who are now starting to buy? Who are now ad buying? Agencies and whatever, because they used buying. to be allowed to do that because right. it was meant to be fucking money. right monopolistic. But now so, so the analogy I had for the PR company coming back to your PR companies coming back to your question is that if it's fourteen times one on here, and we were rushing to there, and all of a sudden the ad agents, it's like. You've got a, f- a featherweight who's gone into the big ring with a middleweight, the advertising agencies, and then halfway through they're just starting to get beaten up. Fucking heavyweights come in as well, or an MMA guy's come in as well, and they're getting the shit kicked. How, how, how often, though, have you been ethically or morally compromised in your job? Because uh, I'm not going to take no for an answer. You definitely have been, because I have been. It's a question of the severity of it. No, very rarely. I mean... But is that the, like the, the, we just the, put arsenic? Like, night, you know, is that is, is there a, is there a cognitive dissonance going on there, or is there a, a, a religious belief in the client, or you know? I, no, when, way back in my youth, I worked for cigarettes. I mean, what no, be, what I, I don't mind working for cigarettes. My view on cigarettes is ban the fucking cigarettes. Okay, right. don't ban the advertising. If they're a legal product, let them advertise. Okay. Let, let's advertise baby seal clubbing up in the Arctic. <laughs> Yeah, what about the baby seals? But then don't allow people advertise kill baby seals. So, right? well, you mean so doing PR for baby seal killing is different from doing advertising? No, for baby I seal think killing? I think the point is. It, I mean, if you're talking, saying, about, there's, nothing, there's nothing fundamentally. I've I've been not I've not been ethically compromised by doing PR for someone. I've been the made, messages I've been. Well, no more than in advertising. So I'm sure that we can think of mm. clients that we... But have you ever come close to going, okay, I have to resign over this? So the, the, the couple of clients that I really, really didn't like working for, and one was... You don't have to say this. Yeah, don't say it, then move on. But I think... I, I think so, so one was um, a company that did... Uh, this was 20 years ago now. Right. Did cod liver oil. And they had some science from some doctors that made a correlation, not a causation, between ingesting cod liver oil and impacting arthritis and your knees and the cartilage around it. And you probably, in your mind, you probably think, oh, cod liver oil, it's good for the joints. Yeah. Correlation, not causation. Still not unproven, but never been proven. And yet, if you do the research after the campaign that we did... Most of this country in the UK believes that, so we did that. So the company's at a crisis. Yeah. When a company's, something has happened, there's... Um, arsenic and baby food. Arsenic and baby food, and they discover that arsenic has been put into baby food. What do you do? When you go into that meeting as a PR person, you're usually going in with a CEO who's absolutely cacking it and worried about his share price and what this means to the company, and the lawyer. And the lawyer is the one who's saying, don't admit anything... And the PR person is the one going in and saying, if you don't admit anything and you cover this up, this is how it will be written about. This is what's going to happen to your reputation. Here's the brand impact for that. So most of the time in those crises, it's the PR person who's forcing the, the company, yeah. not because we good people, right be, not because it's the right thing to do. No, it's not the right, th- um, it, that, that happens to be it, but that's not why you're <laughs> doing it. You're doing it because society, media... And eventually, law from that and customers will punish that company if they don't. I don't think PR is moral. I don't think it's immoral. I think it's amoral. I think we go in and we say to companies, this is what's going to happen. This is how the media are going to write that. If you cover this up, this is how you're going to get treated in legislature. This is how your employees are going to think. This is what your partner's going to say or do. You're fucked. If you do the wrong thing at this point, this is one of those moments in time where you've got to do, do the right thing, not because it's morally the right thing to do, because it's the best thing for your business to do. Most of the time, good PR people are having that conversation, whereas the lawyers, all the lawyers see is the court of law. We come in with a court of public opinion. The poor old CEO is usually caught in the middle in that. So PR companies that do bad things 
So if you've done any of your research, and happily you haven't because you're not that kind of guy, Bell Pottinger, who astroturfed, who created fake accounts uh, for the Gupta family in South Africa recently. How was they ever going to find this? Because it's the biggest <laughs> disaster and failure oh, and okay. scandal in the PR industry okay. in the last 10 years, probably. And they basically incited racial tensions in South Africa. On purpose. On purpose. As a background to this legal case. And they got caught doing it. And the public relations consultants in the UK just went, you know what, we're throwing you out. And the company collapsed. It's a £48 million fee income company. It collapsed and went to zero. So here was a PR company that wasn't taking its own medicine. If you do that kind of stuff anymore and you get caught, you're gone. They come to us and we make a happy, clappy app for them. There you go. That's better, yeah. Last question. What do you say to your younger self who's in Essex and uh, about to get a job in a newspaper or go to college, etc.? What do I say to my younger self? should have an answer to that, don't I? Most no of you comment. do take I'm time. Most of you do take I'm time. I'm in PR, no, no comment. Okay, okay, do a spin on it. <laughs> Well, sometimes been there. Yeah. No. What would I say to my? But well, most people do take time to think about this, and I do shrink it. I cut it because it, it, in some of the podcasts, I goes, "Oh, this," and I've cut, I've cut like this bit out. So I'll probably leave this bit in because most people do do this. It is actually a hard question. Uh, I don't know. I can't even remember what I. Th- How good's your memory? Pretty good. Had so, to be. I don't think mine. Earlier conversations. Mine is. You see, I I can't really remember what I thought about a number of things okay, give, me, give me the PR pitch and we close on that <laughs> what does PR David Brain say no comment <laughs> <laughs> David thank you for being on Pamish Funny B it's been great catching up I learned more about you than I did in this than I have in many many nights drinking in Singapore well it's because you talk too much and look after yourself thank you sir <laughs>